Now, before we move into that discussion of Ritterboss, let me make one side comment and relate something in this lecture to what was in the immediately preceding lecture, this direct revelation on earth. Direct revelation was given to Adam in Eden before the fall. He was created as the image of God. God impressed upon him his moral law. Adam knew God immediately by virtue of the census divinitatis. There was natural, gifted, con-created knowledge of God that consisted in fellowship. Secondly, there were terms of a covenant. God spoke directly to Adam in the Garden of Eden, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the probation command. Yet, that direct revelation was given in forms that were earthly that at that time veiled the glory of God in heaven. In other words, Adam's access to heavenly glory was veiled through created replicas of that heavenly glory. So there was direct revelation, yet in one sense, as long as Adam was on earth, he was not yet given direct access to God in heaven. So there's direct revelation on earth, but not yet direct access to God in heaven. So we could put it this way. Direct revelation was given to Adam, but that direct revelation existed in terms of two distinct estates. The estate of innocency, under probation, on earth, in Eden, to be followed in time by a direct revelation in the estate of glory. Westminster Confession 9.2 and 9.5. And in that realm, in the estate of glory, Adam would pass from being under those temporary earthly forms that veil the glory of heaven as the heavens were opened and he saw the glory of heaven descending out, uh, descending down to envelop, transform, and conform the earth to himself, he would be given a greater and more direct access to God, no longer veiled by earthly forms. So when we say, when I said in the lecture yesterday that Adam's fellowship with God was indirect on earth and direct in heaven, we don't have in view the indirectness of Karl Barth or modernism, we're simply trying to do justice to the fact that while God speaks directly and reveals himself directly by revelation in Eden, Eden is not the climactic final place for the perfecting of fellowship with God. There is a movement to be had in the history of direct revelation from earth to heaven. Now with that being said, and, and seeking to move forward now, Herman Ritterboss in the work entitled Paul, An Outline of His Theology, treats the fundamental structures of what Van Til properly calls, based on Rearboss's work, the teleology of history. And in my assessment, this is the most brilliant um, analysis of Paul's theology along these lines in print even today. And let me give you a few terms that Ritterboss uses, a few key categories in light of the diagram we have up. Define them and then relate them. First, Ritterboss speaks of the pre-existence of the Son of God 
And that brings into view his eternal deity as the second person of the Trinity. I have that right up here. Eternal pre-existence. He says the Son pre-exists or exists before his incarnation in the fullness of time. He says this, page 68, however much Paul's Christology finds its point of departure in Christ's death and in Christ's resurrection, and to whatever degree he draws the lines from thence on the one hand to the incarnation and on the other to the future of the Lord, all this does not alter the fact, listen, that the whole of his preaching of the historical and future revelation of Christ is supported by the confession of Christ as the Son of God in the supra and prehistorical sense of the word. When he says supra, he means above, above history, in the prehistorical, prehistorical, he means that before history was created by the sovereign will of God, before the, spe- the, the general or special work of creation, the Son of God existed as the only begotten of the Father before all eternity. Ritterboss confesses this as the foundational reality in Paul's Christology. Again, he says on page 69, however true it is that the name Son of God again and again denotes the entirely unique relationship of Christ to the Father in the divine redemptive work revealed in him, one cannot precisely because of this pre-existence, that is the existing prior to the revelation of the Son, permit the being of the Son to be lost in his revelation as the Son of God. What are we saying? Well, before the Son condescends in creation and in revealing covenantal terms, before the Son condescends in incarnation and then rises from the dead, he is the pre-existent, self-contained, immutable second person of the Trinity. Ritterboss says again on page 69, as the pre-existent one, the Son of God is the Christ, the object of God's election. And as such, the one whom, in whom the grace of God has been given to the church before times eternal. 2 Timothy 1.9, Ephesians 1.9. Likewise, the one in whom the church itself had already been comprehended, chosen, and sanctified. Ephesians 1.4, Romans 8.29. And so he says again, it is evident here anew, therefore, to what extent the divine glory of Christ, even already in his preexistence with the Father prior to his redemptive revelation, determines and underlies the Pauline Christology. Now, I'm not going to do anything in this module on Bart. That is the module to follow. But I just want you to note here, this is one of the strongest safeguards against Bart's conception of an eternally primordial incarnation, where incarnation and revelation of a redemptive variety are 
preexistent, as it were. You see, to define this as clearly as we can, Ritterboss says now on page 561, he as the son was in his preexistence clothed with the glory of God. Philippians 2.6, Colossians 1.15 et al. So for Ritterboss, first point here, the preexistence of the son is the existing prior to revelation of the eternal and self-contained Son. The person of the Son is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is preexistent with the Father and clothed with divine glory. That's point number one. Ritterboss is remarkably helpful in saying this, to sum it up one last time. No matter how central the death and resurrection of Christ is, no matter how basic his condescension and ascension are. What supports that construction, what supports that proclamation, what gives it its grounding theologically is the confession of the eternal Son in his co-substantial glory with the Father. Now second, and this is a a, a key uh, term that Ritterboss used. I'm not certain about this, but um, it may be a term Ritterboss coined, but I think there are some precedents for it. Ritterboss speaks not only of the pre-existence of the Son in his eternal co-equality with the Father and Spirit, but he speaks, secondly, here's number one, here's number two, he speaks, secondly, of the post-existence of the Son. The redemptive historical post-existence of the Son as raised, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's what he says. He says, uh, page 69 of, of Paul, God sent his Son, Romans 8, 3, Galatians 4, 4, and this sending does not create the sonship, but presupposes it. Why? Because he's the pre-existent Son of God. For the same reason, on the other hand, where there is mention of the consummation of Christ's work of redemption, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when the Son has subjected all things to the Father, then he himself will be subjected to him, that God may be all in all. This cannot mean the end of sonship. One will have to judge the, quote, post-existence of the Son intended here in light of what elsewhere is so clearly stated of his pre-existence. You see that language? What Ritterboss is saying is that when you think in terms of the outcome of Jesus' death in his glorification, when you think of the consummation of the kingdom of God in the incarnate Son of God, the term Ritterboss uses for that is the post-existence of the Son. The Son on the far side of the resurrection. The Son on the far side of ascension. The Son at the right hand of God in heaven as glorified in His humanity. That is the post-existence of the Son. And He remains the Son of God in His post-existence 
because he is the Son of God in his pre-existence. And so, on either side, now look, on either side of the teleology of history, on either side of the eschatology of history in this movement, this progressive and organic movement of the history of special revelation, it's bracketed by the eternal pre-existence and the redemptive historical post-existence of the Son of God. It is the outcome of Jesus' humiliation, the consummation of Christ's work of redemption. And so this is now, if we can think of it and put our minds around this, this is a comprehensive Christological encapsulation of the teleology of covenant history, bounded on either side by the pre- and post-existence of the Son of God. Now, third, and this follows really, I think uh, you'll see, third, and now relating the two, Ritter-Boss notes that the pre-existence of the Son determines the nature of the post-existence of the Son given the glory of His divine person. Now this comment, this third point, invokes what we said in the first portion of this module that the person of the mediator is a divine person. Ritterboss is saying this, that, and I'll just give a quote from page 69. He says, when he speaks of Christ's preexistence, Paul regards and designates this not as separate from, but precisely in its bearing on Christ's revelation in redemptive history. One will have to judge the post-existence of the Son, he says, in light of what is said about his pre-existence. And so you ask this question, and, and we'll put it this way, why is it that when Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, he ascended to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, the right hand of the Father, Colossians 3.2, the right hand of the majesty of high, uh, uh, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Why is his post-existence that of exaltation to the right hand of the Father? It is because of his pre-existence. If you've heard the, uh, a recent lecture that I gave in the Grays Lake uh, Reform Forum Conference 2022, this, just this year, when, Jesus, when the eternal Son of God, Colossians 1.16, in the beginning created all things in heaven and on earth, things invisible and things visible, where was he located? He was seated on the throne in the heaven temple so that when the Spirit filled the glory of that heaven temple, uh, with, with the glory of the triune God, when the Spirit populated that realm with the angels and filled that heaven temple with the glory of the Father and the Son, the, the focus of that glory was on the incoronate, 
enthroned Son of God. Jeremiah 17, 12. A throne was set on high from the beginning. Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne in the temple, what did he see? He saw the eternal, pre-existent Son of God enthroned and exalted above the angels. So when that Son condescends from that realm of glory, condescends from that right hand of God, and in unique and special personal ways condescends, suffers, and dies, and then in His humanity ascends, His post-existence must, in the nature of the case, manifest and reveal His pre-existence. It's an organic movement given the glory of his person from the right hand of God in his preexistence to the right hand of God in his post-existence, seated and enthroned on high. So there is, you see, what we'll call an organic relation. That's point three, an organic relation between the pre-existence and post-existence of the Son. This person, this eternal, pre-existent, enthroned King, in His suffering, as its outcome and reward, must ascend to sit at the right hand of God. So you have pre-existence, point one, post-existence, point two, and an organic relation between the two, point three. Now, four, and this is probably the most difficult to grasp, but the glory of the preexistence of the Son of God in Paul is described in terms and categories that characterize his post-existence as glorified. The preeminent example of this phenomenon occurs when Paul speaks of the eternal Son of God in his processional relation to the Father as the image of God. Paul designates in Colossians 1.15, according to Ritterboss, he speaks of the eternal preexistence of the Son as the image of the invisible God. And he says that it must certainly be ascertained that Christ's divine power and glory already in his preexistence are defined in categories that have been derived from his significance as the second Adam, as the glorified image of God seated at God's right hand in glory, as the one who has assumed the human image brought it to perfection, and ascended into heaven, the language of that post-existent glory is used to render now his pre-existence. So number four, that the language and concepts taken from Jesus' post-existence are used to render his significance, his identity, as pre-existent. And so, Ritterboss says, when Paul speaks of Christ as the image of God, 
He describes him thereby not as in the case when he calls him the last Adam, as the second or last man, but at least in Colossians 1.15, as the preexistent one in his divine glory. Language and concepts taken from Christ as last Adam, as glorified, are used to describe his significance, his identity, as preexistent. And, and then, so, so in Colossians 1.15, when Paul speaks of the eternal Son of God as the image of God, prior to and apart from his incarnation in history, that phenomenon is at work. Language of Son of God, second Adam, depicts his preexistent glory. But now, you really need to put your thinking cap on with me and just think this through, because there's something really important to understand. Ritterboss notes a dangerous error committed by Oscar Coleman that captures a core problem with modernist approaches, especially what is exemplified by Karl Barth. In the language of Colossians 1.15, when Paul calls the Son of God, image of God. So Colossians 1.15. And in Philippians 2.6, where Paul calls the eternal Son the form of God, Oscar Coleman, now please hear this, I'm going to slow down and make sure you get this. Coleman wants to find in this an eternal, quote, man of heaven, an eternal man of heaven. Let me use my language to unpack that for a second. Or an eternalized incarnate son of God. Now, I know this is, I told you in advance, this is the most difficult point to grasp. But here's what I want you to know. Coleman, Oscar Coleman, reading the language of Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Philippians 2.6, the Son is the form of God. Given that these are terms that can speak of Adam in his relation to God, Adam was the image of God. Given that it's a term that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15.49, uh, image of the Son, we will bear the perfected Adamic image of the humanity of Jesus Christ at the last stage. Coleman says, if Paul is describing the preexistent Son in language of image and form, then he must be speaking, listen, of an eternal man of heaven. This would make his deity and his humanity, listen, equally primordial. Coleman's error, according to Ritterboss, is eternalizing the humanity of Jesus by eternalizing his incarnation. Here's what he says about Coleman on page 76. Really listen to this. This is important, and I'm going to spend time uh, amplifying it. When Coleman wishes to find in the Philippians text the representation of Christ's human pre-existence, 
at least that of Christ as a divine, quote, man from heaven, that's Coleman's language, we are convinced that he is moving on the wrong track. For in Philippians it is said with great clarity that by emptying himself, Christ became man and made his appearance as man in contrast to his previous being in the form of God. However much the description of Christ's preexistence in Philippians occurs, there, therefore, in terms that relate him to the first Adam, this may not mislead us to the conclusion that according to Paul, Christ was already man in heaven or must be regarded as the preexistent son of man. Now, I can give you a couple of more quotes from Ritterboss, but Ritterboss pairs acon image and morphe form. And, and Coleman is saying the same thing on the basis of, First Corinth, of Colossians 1.15, that if, if the Son of God is the, is the acon image, if the Son of God is the morphe form, then these terms require us to see him as being a a man in heaven, a pre-existent son of man. Ritterboss says that that move fundamentally misses Paul's point. The eternal and unfleshed logos is described in terms that apply to the creature, but listen, denoting him in terms that can apply to the creature does not require eternalizing those creaturely categories. This is precisely the error of Karl Barth. Paul is explicit that it is only as he emptied and humbled himself in calendar time that he took to himself the form of a servant. Philippians 2 is explicit. But listen, not before. It is as fundamentally wrong to ascribe to him a human nature as it is to ascribe to him covenantal properties. Both errors make the divine and human, the creator and the creature, eternally primordial and interdependent. Coleman, then, is a mutualist likened to Bart and others on this very point. And Ritterboss is saying this, we must never let language borrowed from creation that denotes the preexistent son to mislead us into construing him as an eternal man or an eternal creature. So remember, there are two forms of this error. One is to simply go with uh, Coleman and Bart and say, there is an eternal man in heaven. That is what the preexistence is. Of the Son of God is. It's primordial, interdependent humanity, eternal as the divine nature. Or a softer form, but the same kind of problem that you find in the covenantal properties thesis, whether in the eternal decree or in the work of creation, God has generated and taken to himself created properties. Call them covenantal, call them what you want, call them creaturely. Ritterboss is saying that view is fundamentally mistaken. Why? Because it confuses the language that denotes the preexistence of Christ 
with, confuses the, the language of post-existence that's used to describe pre-existence, it winds up conflating the two. It winds up making the humanity of Jesus as eternally primordial as his deity. Ritter Boston says this, We are thus faced here with the remarkable, in some degree paradoxical phenomenon that Paul describes Christ's pre-human, divine mode of existence and his disposition shown in it with features that make him known to us already in his pre-existence as a second Adam. What takes place here is the extension of the redemptive historical outlook to Christ's pre-existence, starting from the risen Christ as second man or last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, and from his glory as the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4. Paul regards the whole of his divine sonship from this point of view. There is in all this something highly characteristic of Paul's Christology. Without any doubt, Christ is for him the Son of God, not only in virtue of his revelation, but from before the foundation of the world, God, to be blessed forever. But as such, he is from before the foundation of the world and to all eternity God for us. It is not the Godhood of Christ in itself, but that he is God and God's Son for us, which is the content and foundation even of the most profound of his Christological pronouncements. So what does this mean? Let me put it starkly. The eternal Son of God did not take to himself human properties before his incarnation. I'll say that one more time. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, did not take to himself human properties or a human nature or pre-existent humanity before his incarnation. He did not assume humanity until the fullness of time some 2,000 years ago, Galatians 4.4. Nevertheless, and please hear this, Paul deploys language from the image assumed in the incarnation to depict the image generated by the Father before the world began. Yet in so doing, he does not posit that the Son of God eternally assumed created properties or eternally assumed a true humanity. Paul rather speaks of the personal preexistence of the Son of God prior to his incarnation in terms borrowed from his post-existence after the incarnation without conflating or confusing the divine and human. That is the key. As the Asse, unchanging, self-contained Son of God, He was the Son of God for us and would in time take to Himself the created, mutable, composite human nature in the hypostatic union. Personalize it make it steadfast, and serve as mediator of the covenant of grace. But he would not assume created properties, covenantal properties, or eternal humanity in his preexistent glory. Not in the eternal processions, not in the decree, not in the work of creation, not in covenantal condescension in the covenant of works. 
Ritter boss, I'm just coming back full circle here, is emphatic that such a misconception belongs to Coleman. It is on the wrong path. And I might add, Bart, Oliphant, and others who follow this error. It is not what Paul is teaching. It's very similar. Let, let me use an analogy. It's very similar to the phenomenon of anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language, remember, renders the works of immutable, simple, and impassable Trinitarian persons in language and concepts borrowed from the creation without ascribing the properties of creation to God in his acts. So for instance, God, we know that the scripture teaches Malachi 3.6, God, I the Lord do not change, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. We know James 1.17 says that in every good and perfect gift, as God gives every good and perfect gift, as, listen, as the Father acts in time, in giving gifts, He does not change like shifting shadows. He's immutable. He's self-contained. He is unchanging in His acts that fall in time, yet those acts are described in terms of shifting shadows, in terms of categories and concepts borrowed from the created order. As Van Til says, God is rendered in anthropomorphic terms everywhere in the scripture, yet this God does not change, does not grow, does not diminish. Ritterboss is saying something parallel to that. Paul takes the language that is borrowed from the movement of Jesus in his humanity from cross to glory, and he renders, he uses the terms of Jesus' post-existence to render his significance as the eternal, immutable, and impassable pre-existent Son of God. Without, at any point, committing the errors of mutualism, or taking anthropomorphic language, language borrowed from the creature, and misapplying it to God in a univocal fashion. And so Ritterboss offers additional clarity. He says this on page 76 and 77. He is God who became man and was to become man. He is called the image of God Colossians 1.15, he's called the image of God as the one who was predestined to become man, as the firstborn of many brethren to make others share in his image. Romans 8.29, 1 Corinthians 15.49, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He is the Son of God who was sent, Romans 8.3, Galatians 4.4, who was not spared by God, Romans 8.32, who was born of the seed of David, Romans 1.3, who died, Romans 5.10 who by his resurrection was declared to be the Son of God in power, Romans 1.4. In a word, Ritterboss continues, his sonship and his redeemership are in Paul's preaching nowhere abstracted. For this reason, 
even in the glory of his pre-existence, he can be designated by the name of the last Adam and he can already be ascribed the disposition that would characterize him as the second man. All of this is possible. End of quote. All of this is possible given what we surveyed earlier about the divine person of the mediator and what we understand about anthropomorphic language. The last Adam, please hear this, especially when we think of the person of the mediator. Listen, the last Adam, the post-existent son, listen, is the eternal person of the son. The last Adam is the eternal person of the Son incarnate. He is not a different person. He's not someone else. He's the eternal person of the Son of God in a new and permanently personalizing union with his assumed humanity. In that union, the immutable person of the Son of God personalizes his assumed humanity. But the eternal decree to assume humanity must be distinguished from the historical event of the assumption of humanity, and Ritterboss is zealous to safeguard that key distinction. In terms of God's eternal decree, one of the terminal acts ordained for the Son of God was to become incarnate as the last Adam, to traverse the estate of humiliation, and to enter into his exalted glory. But that decree involved no actual assumption of humanity or created properties. That did not happen until the incarnation. So, the eternal person of the Son of God, Ritterboss argues, can be presented from all eternity with the disposition for his people that would find expression in his humiliation from incarnation to cross, and even into his exaltation, because he is a living and active and eternal and immutable Trinitarian person who in time would become incarnate, suffer and rise, and raise his people in union with himself. But this neither renders the incarnation necessary for God to relate to creatures, nor does it render it necessary to ascribe a human nature to Jesus, Ritter Boss's formulation here is immensely useful in this regard. His commitment to confessional reformed theology proper, Chalcedonian and confessionally reformed Christology shines forth in this regard. All of this is affirmed without any mutualizing perversions of biblical teaching and Reformed Orthodoxy. It's the stuff of authentic Reformed advancement. Let me put it this way. Emmanuel, God with us, is not a mutable idol. Emmanuel, God with us, is the immutable person of the Eternal Son who would assume to himself a mutable human nature, personalize it, and redeem a people from sin in his humiliation and exaltation. And Paul uses the language and categories from his identity as the last Adam to render his identity as the preexistent Son of God. Yet such rendering 
in no way humanizes him eternally, in no way ascribes created properties to him eternally, either in the eternal decree or in the work of creation. That is Ritterboss's point. That is what underwrites Van Til's robust affirmation of Ritterboss, yet affirming steadfastly there is no commingling of the eternal and the temporal. There is a robust recognition of the full range of Christology that underwrites this teleology of history and eschatology. This is a sophisticated, robust, comprehensive Christological account of the history of special revelation framed in light of the distinction and relation of pre- and post-existence and accounting for the way that language from post-existence describes the significance of pre-existence without committing the mutualizing error of modernists and biblicists. And it's this theology that Van Til sought to apply categorically to all forms of modernist substitutes for biblical and reformed confessional orthodoxy.